Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already and share widely with others as well. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today we are talking about recycling. Let's recycle everything. It's such a pleasure to welcome into the show Tom Zaki, who is the founder and chief executive officer of TerraCycle. And TerraCycle is all about eliminating waste by recycling the non-recyclable. So whether it's coffee capsules from your home, pens from your school, or plastic gloves from a manufacturing facility, TerraCycle can collect and recycle almost any form of waste. Now, before we kick things off, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is an artificial intelligence-powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients, ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever, and Visa, to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon, and large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN, and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they're able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. And in 2019, their mission-based technology approach led The Economist to calling them an AI for good company. So do check them out at quilt.ai. As I mentioned a minute ago today, it's such a pleasure to welcome onto the show Tom Zaki, who is the founder and chief executive officer of TerraCycle. Tom, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So you're out there in New Jersey. I'm here in the UK. A little bit of a time difference, but we made it happen. So that's cool. Let's uh, let's start by finding out a little bit about TerraCycle. You founded this 20 years ago while you were at Princeton, a student in Princeton. Give us a little bit of a flavor for what the whole thing's all about. Yeah, absolutely. So um, TerraCycle in its core is a waste management company. Our focus is how do we move from linear systems to circular and then progressively tighter circles? Because once you have a circular economy, you want to keep compressing that circle as much as possible. And so the way we achieve that is, first and foremost, we look at products and packages that are not locally recyclable today. And the big white elephant in the room here is more, more or less everything in the world is technically possible to recycle. Right. Uh, what makes things not recyclable in a, in a country is simply if a garbage company can't make money on the value of the materials. Right. So imagine if I littered gold, no one would have a problem with that because people would happily pick it up and uh, and and sell it. But a lot of the products and packages you know that are out there today cost more to collect and process than the results are worth. And so our sort of magic sauce at TerraCycle is we find stakeholders that are willing to pay those costs. And as, as a result, we're able to set up national systems to collect and recycle anything from pens and cosmetic waste, from chewing gum to dirty diapers and hundreds of other things. And then we, from there, focus on how do we help companies integrate waste back into their products so they're not just collecting and recycling, but making their products from waste. And then our uh, latest uh, initiative, which launched a few years ago called Loop, is about how do we help companies move from disposable supply chains where you know uh, arguably the best thing to do is collect and recycle that waste and make it from recycled materials when we make a new one to reuse uh, systems where the packaging is uh, cleaned and then can be refilled and go out again excellent so we have i, I love the you know if you were littering gold there wouldn't be much problem as far as catering to your right right and we're littering honestly the opposite of gold you know where it's uh, and that's the big issue right and so the good thing here is that you have a strong commercial argument, right? You're trying to figure out things that make commercial sense in order to get the economy um, 
everything recycled. Yeah, it is. It is in the end, a commercial backbone is what drives recycling. And I think it's important in all of these cases, whether we discuss sustainability from a climate change point of view or social issues, when you follow the money, a lot of things tend to become more clear because we are living, you know, in a very capitalist driven, uh, driven world. And the challenge with recycling is you can invent any product today. You can make one today and you can put it on the market and uh, you don't have any responsibility on what happens to it after someone purchases it from you. Right, right, right. And it's just so that our audience can get up to speed a little bit. So reusing, recycling, upcycling, what are the different terms? Sure. So if you think about the waste hierarchy, this is simply to say, what is the worst thing to do with an object when you don't want it anymore? And what is the best thing? So the worst thing to do is litter it. That would be like informally disposed in the natural environment. Um, better than that is litter it all in one place, which is what you would call landfilling, like put it all in one big controlled pile, right? Uh, ideally with better management than just all over the place. Then better than that is uh, incinerating, uh, ideally with energy recovery, where then you recover the energy value or the caloric value of the waste. Then one step better than that is recycling, uh, where you recover the material uh, that that object is made from. Uh, uh, and then in recycling, uh, you can, you know, there's different versions of recycling. There's downcycling where uh, it goes into something of a lower quality, which is more common. Uh, uh, probably the most common form of recycling would be downcycling. Then you have sort of closed loop recycling, which is say bottle to bottle. Um, and then there is upcycling, which has multiple definitions. The, the, the most common definition of upcycling is uh, if you Googled it and, and saw what images pop up, it's like sewing juice pouches into backpacks and so on. That would be where you valorize the shape and the, uh, or, you know, the, the material itself. Um, another definition of upcycling is where the material somehow improves in quality. And that may be possible in the future with chemical recycling, where you sort of you know, de-polymerize de material and you make it back to an oil uh, and then you can refine it again into a higher grade material. Then better than all that, right, is reuse, where you just, you know, uh, clean, refurbish, repair, and get it out again. And then better than that is reducing, right, like reducing the total need for a product, concentrating, reducing water would be a good example. And then the only thing better than that, which is truly the only silver bullet in sustainability, is not purchasing whatsoever. Yeah. When I was growing up, the notion of recycling was virtually alien other than a Coke can, maybe. Uh, now it's a bit different, but I guess gradually move, we're moving in the right direction, right? Well, yes, yes, at the same, yes and no simultaneously, right? Uh, there's just a lot of variables at play. So you're absolutely right. You know, uh, recycling has grown, uh, you know, since it sort of came onto the scene, you know, in the in the uh, in the 70s. But it but uh, once it hit a plateau and it hasn't really changed in the past 20 years. And in fact, it's facing a lot of headwind. And uh, some data shows that it's declining headwind in uh, low oil prices poor end markets, uh, so on and so forth. Um, but, the, but, but the bigger challenge in all of this is that our net consumption is exploding. The amount of new plastic we're putting out is exploding. The, the total amount of volume we purchase as, as, as citizens is monumentally bigger. Like think about the lives we live in scale relative to the lives our parents or their parents lived. And, and in all cases, no matter what economic, you know, sort of section of society you're in, it has been exploding, has been growing. And recycling is not the solution, you know, uh, to overconsumption, right? It is just making that a little better. Um, same with reuse or anything. We have to, at the end of the day, have a conversation with ourselves around our relationship with the act of purchasing things. Right. 
And why is it all so confusing? I'm living here in England, local council to local council, it varies on whether they accept this sort of thing as recyclable or not. It just seems like it's very difficult to figure out what is or isn't recyclable. Yeah, it is. It is. It's highly fragmented. Um, and it will change postal code or zip code by zip code or municipality or council and so on. Now, the reason that uh, it is the case is that waste management, right, and that in includes recycling, is a cost. Now, sometimes that cost is paid through your taxes, and then your council negotiates what level of service you may or may not receive. And sometimes it's paid you know, by the citizen directly. Uh, like I pay my garbage bill directly here in New Jersey. In most places, though, it's a part of our taxes. So now as a part of our taxes, the council or municipality is going to negotiate with the garbage company on what level of services uh, their citizens will get. And typically, the more wealthy the, uh, the, the, the council, the better and more robust the recycling or composting availability will be, and inversely, uh, if, the, if, the, if there's other uh, demands for that, for that cash. And so that's one reason it's highly fragmented. Another reason is that the waste management industry is, was made up of a lot of tiny companies. Now, you may say, okay, but there's Suez, and there's now, they, just purchased, uh, uh, they were just purchased by Veolia. So you have a mega company in Europe, or in the US, it's waste management. But even these companies are what you would call M&A roll-ups. So they are an amalgamation of a thousands and thousands of tiny little garbage companies, all who had different capabilities and different infrastructure. So you have different funding married with a highly fragmented amalgamation of organizations, and that creates confusion. And that is compounded by what a, a recycler sets to put in the bin may not be what they sort out. So in America, there's this thing called single stream recycling, which is basically throw all your stuff in the bin, and then we will, the recyclers will sort it out. And you get about 50% of what goes in the bin is not sorted out at the end because what is being sorted out is what has value. And so some recyclers, you know, say are very specific of what to put in the bin. You know, some are a little bit more generous. And then no matter what, they're going to sort out what they can valorize uh, on the other side. So that, that is what creates this highly fragmented nature of, you know, one city may be wildly different than the other. This is the challenge, right, is the more convenient you make it, the, the, typically the less quality the system is. Like in some countries in Europe, you have to you know, separate your clear glass from your brown glass, from your green glass. And that makes, that's highly inconvenient, but makes the outputs have much higher chance of being, uh, being recycled into some other application. Fascinating, fascinating. And so tell me a little bit about TerraCycle. Uh, I've been seeing your name more and more. And even, I, I have to say, I'm a consumer of Ferrera Rocher chocolates. The other day, I bought one of those boxes, very lovely boxes. And there's a very nice gold sticker there saying, you know, TerraCycle, blah, blah, blah. Give us a little bit of insight into what's the magic sauce or what is it that you're doing that you, that's filling that gap? Absolutely. So the, the important thing, again, as we talked about earlier, is what makes something recyclable is if a garbage company can make money. And they have the cost of collecting and processing, and they compare that to the value of the material that they can sell. And if the value of the recycled material is greater than the cost of collection and processing, they're going to be happy to collect it. And that's what typically is what you would call curbside recyclable, unless it's subsidized through taxes uh, uh, and extra investment. Now, many products and packages are not recyclable, you know, like that example that you shared on Ferrero, not because they can't be, but simply because they cost more to collect and process than the results are worth. And so we go to stakeholders, um, uh, say brands or retailers or other stakeholders who will fund whatever the cost is to collect and process that material versus what we can sell the recycled material for. And you could call that voluntary product responsibility or voluntarily taking responsibility over that externality. 
And uh, through that funding, we're able to set up national platforms to be able to uh, do all this completely free to the participant. Now, our job then doesn't stop there. It's then it's about focusing on how do we make sure these platforms get bigger and bigger uh, so that more and more people can access them and to increase not just the, the level of access, but then also how easy it is to participate in, in, in the programs. And so that's the constant sort of focus and craft that we're working on is, you know, how do we get companies to want to not just take responsibility over an externality of their product, but to then keep amplifying, you know, that, that commitment. All right. And getting these companies to take that responsibility, that's, I imagine, arguably, possibly a job that's getting a little bit easier by the day. Yes, yes. There is major tailwind on that at the moment, fueled entirely by uh, citizens waking up and really caring about these topics like they never before. Garbage officially, and you could, the data shows this, went from being a concern, basically since the dawn of garbage in the 1950s to 2017. And then at the end of 2017, it became a crisis and it hasn't stopped. And that helps create a lot of tailwind because citizens get concerned. Citizen concern moves over to lawmakers wanting to pass legislation. We saw banning of plastic bags in Ireland, banning of the straw in Seattle. We see legislation forthcoming on extended product responsibility, deposit return schemes, all this legislation. And when corporates see that coming, they typically want to get ahead of it if at all possible, you know, and that's where voluntary product responsibility may be, may be a factor. And they start seeing the money flow. And so they're looking to invest that in a way that creates the most impact possible. And so, yes, there is absolutely, you know, tailwind, but it's the constant, you know, uh, dance we have to dance on how to continue to, you know, get organizations to want to fund these sort of, uh, these types of solutions. Excellent. So it's not so much that you guys have some groundbreaking technology and, and and it's arguably more the fact that you're able to convene and understand the strategy and the systems and the and the incentives involved in order to align all of these things and make commercial sense for for the um for all the key stakeholders is that is that fair enough to say that yeah i you know i would say there isn't necessarily a profound sort of silver bullet. What, what we have is every waste stream we view as sort of a different animal and we have to collect it, which is all operations. How do we collect it safely? And think like razor blades, dirty diapers, you know, there's big safety questions. How do we do it economically efficiently? Because the funders will want to make sure their dollar is going as far as possible. And then we have to make it exciting and convenient. So there's a big collection component. Then there is the processing component. So we have, you know, laboratories and a whole team of scientists and engineers who do come up with the processes. Now, to be fair, it's not like inventing penicillin, you know, but it is, there are important things that have to be created or assembled to allow these processes to exist. And that creates the engine, if you will, but you need petrol in the engine to turn it on. And that's the funding mechanism. And that is getting a stakeholder to want to fund. And it's those three things that have to come together to get the engine uh, uh, turning. All right, got you. And now you operate in a little bit over 20 countries, is that? That's right, 20 as a mission-driven for-profit and then one as a non-profit, uh, Thailand. Okay, and now that number strikes me as a little bit small, and I'm, I'm not saying it in a bad way, I'm just saying based on what you do and also based on who your, your corporate partners are, you, you know, you, you take these massive corporates who operate in 100 countries, sure. right? I imagine for you, it's just a matter of time until that 20 becomes 100. Yes, um, but to be double-click on your question a little bit, um, if you look at the 20 countries where we are operating, it's countries like 
Brazil, Canada, U.S., Western Europe, uh, not Eastern Europe, uh, 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 Japan, South Korea, China, Australia, New Zealand. All of these have something in common. They're wealthy markets with big budgets. And, uh, you know, I come from Eastern Europe myself. And uh, while we have an office in Budapest, we haven't been able to set up operations because the, the ability to fund is significantly diminished by orders of magnitude. Like the budgets that a brand has to support UK probably a thousand times more than what they have to support a country like Hungary. And so we have this like logarithmic uh, uh, diminishing. And then the other challenge with smaller markets is that it's, it's, it's much more expensive to operate in, the, in smaller markets. There's a strange inverse effect where the bigger the market, the easier it is to incorporate, do accounting, finance, all those legal pieces. And as you go to smaller, it tends to invert to be much, much more complex. So we have higher costs and lower uh, budgets, which is makes it progressively more challenging. And it's a big sort of area of focus, which is why we actually created the TerraCycle Foundation to be able to enter into markets. Our first one is Thailand, but it's entirely focused on how do we enter markets where we can't easily through our for-profit structure. Um, now, you know, the big learning there for me has been that the foundation is doing phenomenal, phenomenal work and it's, and it's working well, but it's much, much harder to run uh, uh, in a nonprofit context and a for-profit, you know, access of capital, um, governance, I mean, you name it, right? So um, it's not to say do it as a nonprofit is the silver bullet, um, but sustainability struggles that it's a domain of the wealthy. All right. So you have the foundation trying to make headway into some of these markets. Let me ask you whether some of your corporate partners with those deep pockets, and you can think about uh, transfer of payments across different jurisdictions and different things that they could do when they have their sustainability agendas, their global sustainability agendas for 2030. Are some of these corporates conceivably saying, yeah, you know what, we can sort of subsidize what will happen in Hungary, even though if we were just talking purely from a local context, we couldn't make it. When we look at head office in the Netherlands and the UK, yes, we can make something happen in sub-Saharan Africa. Yes, yes, um, with an asterisk. So yes, as in like the foundation, the initial sponsor, you know, with a very, very generous seven-figure grant was Pepsi, globally. Then followed by Coke, followed by Benioff's foundation, uh, the guy who runs Salesforce and, and, and so on. So yes, absolutely. But here's the asterisk. There are, you know, 200 plus countries in the world, right? Um, we're operating in the 20 biggest, strongest, you know, sort of markets. And the markets of the what's left you know, the, let's call it 180 countries, you know, plus minus that are, that are, that are not in that sort of, you know, top tier. Um, the ones that get global dollars are the extreme cases, right? It's not going to be, for example, Hungary, never. Right. Not the middle income countries. No, no. It's going to be like, like why Thailand? Because it's, it, it's one of the worst countries for, uh, in generating ocean plastic through uh, informal disposal that gets washed into the rivers, the rivers into the oceans. And so that's what we funded to do to be able to help clean up uh, the rivers. And it's wonderful work and it's great. But you, you, know, you see the challenge, right, is that then it's about extreme, right? Because um, the global offices can deploy capital, but only into the most dire, the, the worst situations. And it still leaves, you know, the chunk in the middle. And, uh, it's a challenge, right? We're, we're, the foundation is going this direction from the extremes, you know, towards the middle. The for-profit is going from the wealthy into the middle. We're doing as much as we can to get in there, but it is, um, uh, it, it is I'd say, the biggest challenge from us being in all countries around the world. Now, on our end, you know, what we're thinking about to solve that is how do we come up with other models, uh, business models that are not, let's say, voluntary extended product responsibility models, 
but direct consumer funded models, um, uh, you know, municipality funded models. But still, the word funded keeps coming up because you have to get paid to do something. And and, and these issues maintain, you know, people in just in, the, you know, in Hungary, for example, or Eastern Europe get paid very little. So they have less capital to deploy. And again, reinforces sustainability becomes a domain of the wealthy. Is there one or two key things that you could look at as a not to say a quick win, but that would make a difference in some of these middle income countries? Because, you know, the pollution of middle income countries is still as detrimental to the world as whether it came from the UK or, or Zimbabwe, right? It's absolutely right. And uh, um, from from our point of view, from a business, whether for-profit or non-profit, non-profits are businesses technically as well. It's just, you know, who they report to and how does the money flow occur. Um, we're focused on globally, how do we uh, produce the most impact? How do we, you know, eliminate the most waste? And so the right way to reinforce that is not as much to look at it geographically, but to look at it from a sort of holistic global context and focus on where can we get funding and then to deploy the funding, uh, or sorry, and then deploy the, the ability to collect and recycle or reuse wherever, you know, there is the greatest appetite uh, for funding, which ends up putting us into the way I described. It doesn't answer your question directly. I think the important answer is we take a step back and look at this crisis, this crisis of, of waste, is we are constantly uh, voting for this in what we purchase and what we don't purchase. And I think we have to really think about that very deeply. Um, and you know, no matter where in the world we live, in some places the vote may be easier to cast, like where you and I sit, it should be very easy to vote properly. In, in an area where you are, you know, uh, uh, not able, you know, like just barely, you know, making ends meet, living in a flavela, you know, in, in uh, Brazil, massive empathy that the vote is significantly more challenging to cast, right? In, you know, uh, uh, relative to our state, living in wealthy countries like the UK or the US, you can even argue almost impossible to cast it, but we still vote. And, and that is the ultimate determiner, right? Uh, because businesses are there to to make sure that what we want to vote for is available on the shelf. And uh, that's going to be the biggest question of all, because I don't perceive that business can solve the sustainability issue, right? Um, the only, only answer out there that is a clear and, and, and answer that will solve all the crises of sustainability um, is dramatic lowering of consumption. I don't see any other answer. If we're going to get to net zero impact, not just net zero carbon, because that's just one, one vertical to look at, but you know, net balance on species diversity, on, uh, on uh, for, you know, level of forestation, right? Not just controlling deforestation, but reforestation, you know, climate reversal. I mean, all these things, not having a you know, problem. If we were to internalize business, all those externalities, um, the same thing I'm predicting would happen, which is prices would explode, right? Your car would be a hundred times more expensive to purchase and operate. Staying in a hotel room would not be a hundred bucks, but five thousand dollars. You know, it would be. Ex and what would happen as a result? Consumption would decrease, right? And uh, uh, business is challenged sincerely because even the best acting business. If I was say a proprietor of business X, and I really deeply believed in all these things, and I said, you know what? I'm going to check every externality I produce. I'm going to neutralize it, you know, directly or indirectly, but I'm going to do it. I would go out of business because uh, my, my prices would explode. And if my competitive set doesn't follow, then my actions end up uh, occur, you know, going nowhere because I go bankrupt and someone else picks up my market share 
who is only really just managing against the bottom, which is where legislation is. And so this is the big conflict in business, I think, is that um, uh, I think business is acutely aware of its impact these days, especially the larger organizations. They've done a lot of measurement, but they're somewhat paralyzed because either their shareholders are demanding profit, right? And so the leaders can't do it because if they did, they would be replaced with a little bit more profit-centric leaders, or, or even if there is permission to do it by the shareholders, then... Um, uh, then there is the competitive set that becomes a very, very big uh, challenge, right? And, uh, and so it somewhat has at some level of paralysis. So I think that's why we see small incremental steps, uh, not the gigantic leaps that are really needed. So how do we reconcile some of these tensions? And by that, I mean trying to reduce the mutual exclusivity of being eco-friendly and sensible and consuming less and producing less and just being less of an intrusion to the fact that a company needs to survive and needs to sell or have some revenues. What, how do you, what are the bits that you can do to sort of... I would argue with, I think we have to, to question the question you just said, which is a company needs to survive, right? Um, I don't, you know, companies aren't, you know, I don't know if they all need to survive. I don't know if that's, that's the output. I think life needs to survive. Plants, animals were included in that. And companies are there to serve us, right? Uh, and so how do we actually pragmatically achieve this? I think is we have to start voting as citizens for a, and it's incredibly difficult. I struggle from this as well, right? I'm, you know, as much a part of the problem as the next person, we have to really lower our appetite, which is, fundamentally anti-animalistic, you know, animals uh, want to, because they live in scarcity, you know, are all about, you know, hoarding, gouging, you know, eating as much as possible. I, I would argue if humanity thinks it's somehow better than other animals, uh, the real question will be not our smarts, but our ability to control a very basic animalistic desire of greed, right? And about, you know, hoarding our acorns in the corner, you know, for, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, mentality, right? That has to happen. And then, somehow the cost of consumption needs to go up. Um, that can be done through legislation. Um, and, if, and this is the interesting part. It's going to happen anyway. Like corrective pricing or something. Right, right. It, it, the, the human approach would be you know, us lowering our desire and then legislation pushing up pricing and sort of balancing that, you know, uh, taxes on linear systems, on destructive systems, you know, so on and so forth. Um, and the interesting part is I would predict it's going to happen net net anyway. I mean, if you think about like the US uh, or Australia, if suddenly all this amazing farmland in California becomes desert, which is what it's on track to achieve, what will happen? Food prices will go up, right? Um, as we have strains, you know, as Texas uh, froze, supply chains broke down. And what happens? Price increases come as a result. So it's happening. But, I've, but it's happening through destructive, you know, uh, uh, destructive uh, inputs. And I think It'll happen anyway. Nature will correct. I mean, our great predator is not a fox or a disease. It's, it's, um, it's environment, right? There is always going to be something that hits back. And, but that's a very painful process. And a lot of fellow citizens on this planet, you know, the plants, the animals, uh, not, uh, not just other humans, are you know, going to pay the price. And usually the most innocent of all, right, you know, uh, will pay the price uh, most dearly. Can we get above that? Is the, I think the question of humanity. Can we somehow get above our 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 our, our self centered desires? I don't know, but I think it's. Are you feeling optimistic? Um, no, uh, but um, but that is still the question, and you know, hope is very important, and I will you know hold on to hope and do everything I can all day you know to achieve it. Um, 
But uh, no, I won't say I'm optimistic, but I'm going to work really hard and maintain hope. Excellent. Now, you've obviously given this a lot of thought. I mean, because your knowledge of the space is, is not uh, only impressive on the technical side, but I think you've given it a lot of thought in terms of the philosophy and the, uh, and the economics and the sort of social dynamics that underpin all of these things. Give me a little bit of a flavor for, for your trajectory and, and what drove you to where you are today. And I think I read someplace that the first time you ever saw a TV was a television that was being thrown away. Yes. And that left a sort of indelible mark in you. It did. I mean, so I, I was born, you know, while the Iron Curtain was still up in Eastern Europe, uh, so effectively communist uh, in the early 80s. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, we left as political refugees in uh, 86 Hungary. I landed in Canada and Toronto, I think, uh, when I was seven. So I'd probably around 88, 80, 80, yeah, 88, perhaps, just before actually the Iron Curtain ended up coming down. And... Uh, you know, back in, in uh, Eastern Europe, you know, while, while we were still under sort of, you know, Russian occupation, the, uh, you, could, you had to apply for a television set and it was very unlikely you'd even get one. So, you know, we never, never owned one. I saw one once at someone's house, you know, it was, it was black and white and you had, you know, the state channels and walking around the streets in Toronto, people would literally throw out TVs. And like my dad and I couldn't believe it. We'd take these TVs and plug them in and they worked and they were in color just probably because the new model had come out for whoever had it. And it really shocked me. Um, you know, and in parallel, I fell in love with the idea of entrepreneurship, probably for egocentric reasons, like fame and fortune pursuit um, you know, at a young age. Um, but these two things sort of came together as I got a bit older in university was you know, how to create purposeful entrepreneurship, which is what TerraCycle has been about all the way through, is to lead with purpose and to move the role of profit as the, as the purpose of a business to more an indicator of health. That is to say, profit is very important, right? But I would argue it's more like having a good heart and having a, you know, a healthy body, right? Because then you can flourish and grow. Profit is, does that. Um, and if you're not profitable, it's like you know, being ill. And, it's, and that's not going to you know, bode well for your longevity. And, uh, but I think that's more the role of it, right? Because if profit is the god, then you know, some really horrendous decisions will be made in service of that God. And shouldn't it be the purpose of what is done? And this really challenged me. Like every time I talk to a business school, I ask, you know, what is the role of business? And the students write back these very sort of utopian things like helping humanity, helping the planet, you know, solving a problem. And, but the textbook doesn't say any of that. The textbooks say maximize profit to shareholders. And well, I don't think business is the answer and cannot self-correct because it has this, it has this insatiable appetite. I mean, what do the stock markets valorize? It's growth over anything. Um, there is still a big turn that we can do about making business fundamentally more purposeful and, and redefining the role of profit. I think that's something we can do, but we can't say business can self-solve entirely. Yeah. Interesting trajectory, really fascinating narrative as well. And so I know TerraCycle is a private company. It is, yes. Is, is that your? Is that by design? Is that where you? No, no. Conceivably, now the way you are, you could you could do many things with it. Yeah, and look, we're uh, uh, we have ambitions. One, you know, to potentially go public at some point. We're now at the scale where that is a uh, a reasonable conversation, and we're having it internally, and you know, and at least doing all of our processes, you know, uh, as if we were, I mean, we do file with the SEC in the US, you know, we do all these things. Um, and so yeah, we'd like to, you know, uh, to go into that trajectory, because that will allow us to access public capital and then grow even quicker. Um, 
And you notice what I said, grow even quicker, right? I mean, business can't control that. Now we think our growth is very purposeful and good, but I think again, you know, we have to acknowledge what business can and cannot do and hold it accountable to that and at what pace it can or cannot do it. Um, and, then, and then think about all the other factors and buttons we can press to accelerate the change that's needed. Yeah. Let me ask you, uh, let me ask you, I see behind you this uh, couple of logos there on Loop. Yes. Um, and Loop's one of your initiatives, and we touched on it briefly, but give us a little bit more insight into Loop, because I think it's a fascinating. Yeah, so um, Loop is, uh, you know, we asked ourselves, is recycling and recycled content enough? And we landed on the answer of no. And every time we do that, we sort of think about, well, what is the next step? And so we said, well, the real fundamental reason garbage exists, we believe, is disposability and our love of disposability for its convenience and affordability. And so Loop was created as a, as a response to that, as a platform to enable manufacturers and retailers to, to play in reuse and, and consumers as conveniently as possible. So you know, that's very esoteric, basically brands, you know, like your Nestle's to your PNG's develop reusable versions of their products and, and other packaging, really, you know, imagine your ice cream now in a reusable stainless steel container or your, your Coca-Cola back in that beautiful reusable glass bottle. And of now 175 of these companies and then retailers like where you are Tesco or uh, in the UK or Carrefour in France or Eon in Japan, Kroger in the US now create sections in their store dedicated to these products. And as a consumer, our goal is to have you have as close to a disposable experience as possible. You buy these products filled, everything is normal. You just pay a deposit on the pack. And then when you're done with the pack, dirty, you just put it back in a loop bin, get your deposit back. It's effectively a throwaway uh, feeling model. But then those, that, that waste that comes in is not shredded and melted like recycling or landfilled or burned like disposal, but cleaned. And then goes back to the manufacturer who refills it. And it allows uh, reuse to be as wide as possible, right? It's not just beverages uh, like it is uh, in Germany or beer like it is in Canada or our propane tanks like it is in the US. Um, it's trying to enable this for everything from your skin cleansing, you know, to your, to your laundry detergent, you know, uh, even clothing early next year, your McDonald's coffee cup and so on and so forth. So what was like the most radical thing in the pipeline of what you could do with, with like, so I remember, yeah, sometimes the, there were some bottles that you could, you could return to the retailer and you get whatever you deposit five cents, whatever. But what are some of the things now that are really just mind blowing? Well, so we started with uh, what you call FMCG or fast moving, uh, con uh, you know, fast moving consumer goods. And uh, uh, that would be like your packaged food, packaged beverage, home care, personal care. And there is about 175 companies from L'Oreal to, you know, Unilever uh, doing their, you know, their wares in that. Um, the next step was looking at QSR, quick serve restaurants. So Burger King, McDonald's, Tim Hortons uh, and others have now joined in, you know, for everything from beverage containers to sandwich containers. And as we experiment with width, um, in the US, we just launched reusable diapers with PNG, uh, Procter & Gamble in, uh, in Loop. So fully cloth reusable diapers uh, where we wash them for you. Uh, in the UK, we're launching baby clothing soon. Um, we're working with a major pharmacy on reusable pill bottle packaging because you know one pharmacy in the US produces half a billion non-recyclable pill packages a year. Now, uh, this is what we look at for width, right? And each one has unique challenges. Like, you know, pill packaging, someone would say, well, why can't you make it easily reusable? Well, there's a lot of FDA questions, pill residue, you know, uh, uh, drug residue. Uh, and then, you know, not to mention the identifying information of the prescription that is clearly printed on the pill package. And you can imagine there's a lots, of, lots of these details that have to be sorted out uh, to even enable this to have a chance to exist. Um, so, you know, that's what a lot of our team focuses on. 
Excellent. Wonderful. Give us a parting takeaway. What's that key thing you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? Um, vote for the future you want with what you buy and what you don't buy. Because no matter what, you are voting. And uh, it's important that we take any vote we cast seriously as a vote. Um, and just think about that next time you go shopping. Excellent. Wonderful. Tom, it really has been a learning experience for me and you're doing some great work. So I wish you continued success. And uh, thanks very much for taking the time today. It's been it's been really wonderful. It was a real pleasure. Look forward to the next time our paths crossed. Perfect. And that's a wrap. You've been listening to a great chat with Tom Zaki, the founder and chief executive officer of TerraCycle. For information on more than 100 episodes with remarkable thought leaders, just visit our website at Ligi.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click the subscribe button if you haven't already. Do share widely with your friends, family, and colleagues. And leave us a review and a rating if you enjoy the show. Thanks so much, and I'll catch you next week.